So welcome. I'm Fatih Fan, president of the History Science Society. Lovely weather here in upstate New York. Since this doesn't happen very often, it must be an auspicious sign. Flowers are blooming and the birds chirping. And so History Science Society, or HSS, is going to be 100 years old next year. It's pretty old, but still very young uh, in spirit and everything. So to celebrate its 100th anniversary, we're rolling out many very exciting activities. One of them is this podcast series. And this very episode is its first over uh, in Audrey episode. So we're very excited to be here. And the topic we'll be talking about today is HSS at 100, past, present, and future. So it's wonderful that we have three eminent guests here with us who are perfectly suited to talk about this topic. Two past presidents of History Science Society, Bernard Lightman from York University in Toronto, Jan Golensky from University of New Hampshire. We also have here Evelyn Hammonds from Harvard University, currently Vice President of History Science Society and will become our new president next year. So welcome, thank you uh, to be here with us and uh, wonderful to have you here. So I have a whole series of questions and uh, but first of all, I would like to get to know you better. We have worked together, and so I just wondering, I'm uh, very curious about this question, but how did you get interested in history of science? So what do you think is the most interesting and exciting thing about history of science? So Evelyn, would you like to go first? Let me answer the first question about how I got interested in the history of science. So I was an undergraduate student in Atlanta, Georgia, at Spelman College, Georgia Tech, uh, studying physics and electrical engineering. I started my first graduate program in physics at MIT, and I became interested in the history of science because I was one of the first, uh, well, probably was the second or third African-American woman to enter the PhD program in physics at MIT. And I looked around and I could not figure out why there were so few women and why so few African-Americans and other native-born minorities in the physics program. I knew, I grew up knowing lots of people who were interested in science in my neighborhood in Atlanta. But then when I started engineering school and, and then on to the PhD program in physics, it was so few African-Americans. And I wanted to understand why. And of course, I also wanted to understand why so few women. And I kept asking questions about this. And my physics advisor, Bob Bergenau, who became chancellor of UC Berkeley, a very eminent condensed matter physics, said, these are not physics questions. And I said, but they are for me. They're physics questions for me. And I need to understand what's going on. And during that time, I started talking to people about those questions. And someone said, you know, you need to study the history of science. That's where you can go find out about those kinds of questions about why race and gender seem to have such an inordinate impact on the composition of the scientific and technical workforce, certainly here in the United States in the 20th and 21st century. So that's how I came to study history of science, because I had these questions about why there were so few folks who looked like me doing science at the time. So do you find this part of it is this most interesting, exciting part of our history of science that connected to your curiosity about this 
very interesting, important questions. Well, you know, I ended up finding, so since I was already excited about doing science, I carried that excitement into doing, pursuing particular questions in the history of science. Because, of course, if you're trained as a science student in this country, by and large, you don't ask questions about, for example, why are we doing this? Why is this particular set of questions interesting and important questions in our field? I wasn't trained to ask those kind of questions. I was trained to sort of think of the physics questions that I worked on as sort of interesting puzzles or conundra or problems that I wanted to take apart and put things back together, which I always did, starting with my sister's watch when she was three years old. And my mother said, why did you take apart your sister's watch? And I said, because I wanted to know how it worked. She said, why not take apart your watch? And I thought, that's crazy. Why would I take apart my watch? So I wanted to understand how things worked. And those questions were interesting to me, but I did not have any idea about why they were interesting questions in the larger context of the field of condensed matter physics, which was really going in interesting directions at the time I started. We never talked about those things. And so in the history of science, I found I could answer more, I could explore more questions about context, about history, about other kinds of problems in science, particularly biology, the biological sciences, life sciences, as we say now, that had always puzzled me. And so I found in the history of science that I was actually having an opportunity to think much more broadly about the scientific enterprise and scientific work and the problems that scientists were trying to solve. So that's what I always found interesting. I still find interesting. I I still try to pick up and read physical review letters, even though I can't figure out anything anymore, but I still, I'm still interested in what kinds of things people are, are, are working on. That's fascinating. Thank you. Here's a question for Yang. How did you get interested in history of science and what do you think is the most interesting, exciting part of it? Well, I did my early education in the United Kingdom. In fact, all the way through undergraduate and graduate work, and and I I did a postdoc in the UK. And I think one of the things is that the education system in the UK channels people into much more narrow specializations at an earlier stage than is usually the case with the American system. And I'd always been interested in history and in science. So I really, it was kind of predetermined when I discovered that there was a subject called history of science that I would take an interest in that. And so I found it was possible to do that. I did some history of science even as an undergraduate, then moved into a actually a philosophy department where I did my PhD in history of science and then returned to Cambridge, my undergraduate institution, where I had a postdoc. And in terms of the excitement, I, I think one of the exciting things about the field is that precisely that it contains such a diversity of individuals within it with a diversity of backgrounds. And so you do find people who came to history of science from the sciences, but you also find people who came from various humanities disciplines in their background and so on. So that's actually, one of, I think, one of the delights about being a member of the history of science community that it contains people with with such a a range of different backgrounds and and hence a range of different approaches to the subject. Great. That's really interesting because I also find it uh, similarly, I find it very interesting is is history science actually tremendously diverse and inclusive in so many ways. So how about Bernie? 
My answer is going to be in some ways very similar to both uh, Jan's and uh, Evelyn's answers. The way I got into it actually was, sadly, the death of a very close cousin got me much more serious when I was uh, 19 or 20. And I started asking big questions about religion and science. What is the meaning of life? I mean, these, all these kinds of big questions that the death of a loved one tend to, to raise. And I found that some of the courses I took in intellectual history, many of which were involved with scientific ideas and religious ideas and their connection, they allowed me to think through some of those questions, even though I couldn't do it in my essays in class and we weren't addressing those issues directly. It still, for some reason, it, it helped to help me to understand more about how to think about death and human existential meaning and things like that. So I did begin as an intellectual historian, but due to practical reasons, i.e. there was nobody, there were no jobs in intellectual history in the 1980s when I was looking for a position, I had to redefine myself. And I found that the history of science came closest to what I was looking for. And the history of science community, particularly when I start to attend HSS meetings, was very welcoming. So I felt very comfortable at the HSS. And since the field was changing, moving more in the contextualist direction, I didn't find that I had to alter my approach to the history of science. As for uh, what I find interesting, exciting, again, a very similar response to what we've already discussed. It's a very interdisciplinary area. And I enjoy the freedom of being able to trace out where, wherever my research takes me, whether it be to science and art or uh, science and popular culture, science and literature, and I can do that in this field. Great. Thank you so much. And uh, so the question would go like this, from the easier ones to become tougher and tougher along the way. So, yes. so here are questions, <laughs> questions for Bernie and Young. So... What did you find most exciting and rewarding as president of History of Science Society? So were there challenges? So this time we'll start with Bernie. Well, just having the privilege of working with very committed and talented uh, members of the executive committee and council, that, that really made it all worthwhile. We had great people on the executive when I was president. The other thing that was wonderful was being president while, when we had the Utrecht meeting, because I thought that was just such a different, unique meeting compared to what we've, we've done in the past. Challenges. Well, uh, my term was from 2018 to 2019, right in the middle of the Trump years. And so the challenge was, how do we continue to be uh, an academic society in that kind of period of turmoil, which, I mean, we're still living to some extent in, in a period of turmoil, but it seemed like a big change because we wanted to somehow be involved in political issues, but that's not something that the HSS had done previously. So it was a challenge to figure out, you know, how we react in a, in a way to all the chaos that was happening. Surprises? Not, I don't think I really counted any surprises in terms of working in the society as president. Since I had been society editor for a little over 10 years, I was pretty familiar with how HSS worked, how the executive worked. And so I, I don't think I ever felt like, oh, here's, you know, other than the political situation, but in other than surprises there, but in terms of working of the society and, and how that all worked, I don't think I ever felt like there was a big surprise. 
Right, thank you. And I think that during uh, that period and continuously, our society, as well as many other learning societies too, like they were trying to figure out how to position ourselves both in between academic world and to be relevant to outside world. Um, you know, we, we all were scholars, but we're also citizens or we're also people who concerns about the humanity at large, basically, or a planet. Whatever it is that we all try to speak about uh, certain things. So it is not easy to basically define a position. And it's ongoing process, obviously. There's no predetermined uh, positions, in a sense. But how about Young? So basically, you know, as a president of History Science Society, you went through the COVID period. So how does that feel? My years of the presidency were the COVID years, 2020 and 2021, and that that certainly posed challenges. So in those two years, we didn't meet in person at all. We didn't have our annual meetings in person. We we replaced them with online events. And um, in fact, the executive committee and the council also never met in person during those two years. So... That was certainly challenging. I mean, we learned a lot about the value and the limitations of online communication. And I think we we learned that it certainly has some limitations. And we were very glad when we were able to resume meeting in person. But on the other hand, we also realized that it did have some values. And that, for example, in allowing people to contribute to meetings without having to travel, which in some cases is difficult for one reason or another. And so I think we've learned that we want to sustain a a sort of online component or stream of, of what we're doing on a regular basis. Maybe not online meetings can't always coincide with in person meetings, but maybe we can have online meetings in addition to in person meetings. And that does have the value of bringing in people who otherwise could not attend the meetings. So there was that. There was also a series of internal organizational changes, which were sort of forced upon us with some personnel changes in the executive office. And and that took quite a while to settle down. Mm-hmm. I think we now have settled down. We have a very effective executive office team. And we've, in fact, moved the physical location of the executive office. Those were important developments. And we also renegotiated our contract with our publisher, the University of Chicago Press, during the period of my presidency. And I think uh, we've established a better basis for our um, relations with our publisher as a result of that. So my presidency did seem like a lot of the time, like crisis management. But I think we came out of it with some things settled and some things improved in terms of how the society runs its affairs. And, you know, once I can kind of uh, my wounds recover, I think I can take some satisfaction from, from what we achieved during those two years. It was amazing achievement. I would say that, you know, the COVID, the impact of the pandemic was tremendous. And everybody, especially not since you were president, you had to learn basically on the fly, like every single thing. And I, I have to say that I'm so basically eternally grateful to you, you know, for what you have done during those uh, 
years and so on. So, so for Evelyn, so what's your vision for History Science Society? So what do you expect to be the most interesting and exciting part of your job as president of History Science Society? You know, I've been been thinking a lot about it as I've been, you know, following you around and participating in in more of the leadership discussions than I had in a very, very long time. That I guess what I see, and I was mostly reminded of this, or made aware of it, I should say, at this this year's annual meeting, uh, COVID did have a a really significant impact on the society. And, and, and Jan and, and Bernie both had to ride through some completely uncharted waters. And I do yeah. think it's time for a bit of reflection then about what we, what we did gain from being fully remote and what we lost, and then try to identify how we might respond to such an assessment. What might we change about what we were doing for years and years before COVID? And we'd all settled into a kind of particular set of expectations about what an annual meeting was supposed to look like. And I think that COVID has made it made us aware that we don't have to have one format for annual meetings. We don't have to not be in communication with each other except for once a year. We might have sub-fora where our groups would be meeting on an ongoing basis, creating more discussions for the larger community to be invited to that that do not occur at an annual meeting. I think it's time to think about how we might more creatively and innovatively bring people together within the society and also extend our work further out into a broader context by using technology in interesting ways. And that ultimately it means that the annual meeting, maybe it just becomes a different entity. And I think that's an exciting thing to start thinking about. And I, I do think that some of our other societies have begun to think about that. And I think it's important for us to, to take advantage of this moment and try to do so. The other big thing that I, I'm excited by, but I also think is really important for the society, is to do more ongoing activities that reach a broader public, that speak to the really significant issues of today that involve science and technology. As someone said, you know, the 20th century was the first time there were more people doing science and working in science and all around science and technology and medicine and basic research and all of that in the 20th century than in the history of the world. I think there are a lot of people in a broader public that want to understand how to think about these incredibly rapidly changing developments that we face. I think we've sort of handed a little bit of that over to journalists, and I think we ought to take it back. That's wonderful, and I totally agree. These are really excellent, excellent points. And uh, so I would love to be able to work with you, Evelyn, going forward to think about these issues. And so thank you. And we have uh, more now is we're getting to really big questions, more difficult questions even. So, okay, so uh, these questions are about history science as a research field and a discipline. And then obviously related also history science society in the current state of academia, the house related to these uh, issues. So the question, the first question would be, how was history science and uh, of course, uh, history science society relatedly changed? How has it changed in the past, say, recent uh, decades? And 
how should they change in your view in terms of uh, topics, methods, audiences, and so on? Right. So, Jan, do you want to go first? Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the field has changed enormously since I got into it, which is more than 40 years ago, and in, in all sorts of ways. I mean, the the situation, as, as people have said, is, you know, that, that for many, many decades, the History of Science Society was a society of professional, academic historians of science. And I'm not sure that it can continue to be that because I think that's that's a species that's that's going to be diminishing in numbers. The crisis in the humanities disciplines in general is real, uh, particularly in institutions which are heavily dependent on undergraduate enrollment, such as uh, many public universities and and smaller liberal arts colleges. Students are not choosing to study history and humanities to the same extent that they used to, and that is going to reduce the opportunities for employment in educational institutions in in our field. So we have to see how we can respond to that and how the History of Science Society can mobilize the resources that it has to support people working in very different kinds of disciplinary configurations and institutional settings than we have been dealing with in the past. And we, we do that in the ways that we, I mean, through the kinds of mechanics that we, we have used before. We, we are a professional society. We offer meetings and conferences. We offer opportunities for people to network. We publish research and we publish other less formal kinds of writing as well. So that's what we do. But we have to, I think, adapt the way in which we do those things to a situation where the identity of the discipline is different from what it was. And the uh, professional identities of the people participating in the discipline are different from what they were. Great. Thank you. So it seems to like there's uh, several things going on. One is the crisis in the humanities and then our related academic fields. And so history science, in a sense that it seems like, as you mentioned, that it's actually in a very potentially is actually a, a very nicely positioned, so to speak. That is that we could argue, in a sense, a word between humanities and also the sciences. Strategically, as well as, well as intellectually, is actually a very strong argument to be made on that regard. So, Bernie, we want to take on these questions? Yeah, I just want to add to, to your comments, Fatih, that we are also in a very good position to help people to understand what happened to science and medicine during COVID. I mean, the whole issue of the cultural authority of science, of a scientist, and seeing just you know how that has changed so dramatically as a result of the pandemic. I think that's something that we can offer a lot of insight into. But I actually was going to, in response to this question, make a comment about the global turn in the history of science, because I think, I think while all of the problems that uh, Jan has pointed to having to do with the crisis of the humanities and the change in the discipline, at the same time, what has impressed me in the last four or five years or even more 
is how historians of science have started to adopt a global perspective when they're looking at the development of science uh, over the centuries. So I think the scholarship has really changed a, a great deal in terms of getting out of a kind of narrow uh, focus on one particular national scientific tradition. And I think that's been very healthy. But I think that means that the History of Science Society has to try to resolve an ongoing kind of debate within the society about whether or not we are the American History of Science Society or are we an international History of Science Society. And, and I know these are topics dear to your heart, Fatih, and I think you know, that the notion of reaching out to other societies uh, around the world and to other communities of historians of science, particularly in, in Asia, I think that is something that should become more and more uh, a priority. There are very large communities of historians of science in some of these other countries. And I think we have a lot to learn from them. They have a lot to learn from us. And in many cases, we're working on the same kinds of issues. Right. So, yes, indeed, it's, Bernie, what you say is kind of music to my ears, in the sense that one of the my priorities in the past uh, year or more has been kind of a really to globalize history of science as a field, as well as history of science society as a, a, a organization. So we have been trying very hard to establish connections to all the parts of the world. And I always tell people that History Science Society is not an American society. From its founding, it has always, always been an international organization. And with uh, international vision and, you know, like global kind of a perspective and so on. So, so that is a, a tradition that I think we definitely want to build upon. And that's something that I've been very mindful about and uh, working hard on trying to basically establish this tradition. And so, Evelyn, so... So here's that we're seriously, we're facing uh, many challenges. Not, not only we means not only history of science as a field, but also the humanities in general. And so how do we respond to that? Um, I, I think, again, it, it's a moment of, of really reassessment of how we actually thought about the field of the history of science. It's the need to look at a global turn, as, as Bernie just said. But I also think there are other things that we've paid lesser attention to. Like, I think there's a real need for us to think about where we should be as a society with respect to expanding scientific literacy. I think, again, it's something that is incredibly necessary. I think COVID showed us a lot about that. And, and that I think people who are professional historians of science have a particular way of reading, analyzing, critiquing what scientists are up to in any given moment of time. I think that's something that could be a very valuable aspect of what we think about as scientific literacy in this country. Also, because we've studied some of the history of some of these, you know, attempts to improve scientific literacy and how they failed and why they failed, I think we have something to offer to those debates. So I think more about expanding it to, to, to really think of ourselves as having a role to play in that. I also think the society should be much more engaged in education and advocacy for uh, broader liberal arts, humanistic education. We're in the middle of many, many battles right here in this country right now. With regard to that topic, I think we ought to be part of it as our sister organizations, particularly the American Historical Association is doing lots of work on that. I think we ought to be engaged in that. I also think that 
again, it might be a moment, we might be in a moment of sort of reinvigorating big science role of government. The bill that uh, the administration passed this past summer, which is going to infuse the federal agencies with respect to science with a great deal of money. And we ought to be paying attention to where that money is going, how it will shape the opportunities for new developments, innovations, all of that in the enterprise here in the United States and how it would affect the world. So those are places where I think we as a society have to decide, do we want to be in these in both internal and external conversations about kinds of things? And I think we do a very good job of thinking past some narrow notion of disciplines. I think we have, we do do interdisciplinary work, many of us. I think that's a very important strength that I think we could make. We need to talk about more. So I'd like to see more conversations about why we do what we do and why we study what we study within the society. But I also like to see that be a part of, of public facing discussions for other scholars in other fields. We're reaching, other fields are reaching in and grabbing. I've noticed this. I don't know if you, if you all have noticed this. Picking up projects and I go, that, that person's not a historian. So why are they writing about that? <laughs> and then you, you see all these kind of gaps and how they, you know, somebody might put a different a story together that we wouldn't do. And, and I thought, that's, that's fascinating. So I think we ought to be more, given that we, we are open to people of diverse backgrounds, I think we ought to be more into that, but also talk about what it means for how we do our work, what our work is about, and, and how we want ourselves to be understood in the world. I don't know about you all, but still, if I, people say, what are you doing? I say, I'm a historian of science. I still get the blank look. Why is that? You get paid for doing that? So I think there's a lot for us. I think it's an exciting moment. It's a moment of, of, of renewal and re- reassessment that we should take advantage of because I don't, but actually I think if we don't, others will. Right. Well, this is a very exciting topic and I would like to take it on. But before that, I would also like to kind of a go back a little bit when we're talking about we're facing challenges and so on. Um, not we means not simply history science as a field, but really about humanities in general. That is that we, uh, as a society, we have been trying very hard, trying to find ways to support the next generations of historian science. So we have the summer school this summer. Uh, this is the first time. And uh, throughout the year, we also hope to have a series of uh, kind of a tutorials and the online activities trying to help graduate students and early career scholars. And so these are the things that we're taking steps to do. And in part is also to say American Associ- uh, Historical Association, for example, recently they have this new guidelines about broadening the definition of historical scholarship, which is also something we should take to heart. It seems like history of science as historian science are well positioned to be on the vanguard of really pushing the envelopes of what historical scholarship is and it should be. And so I feel that's something that we should think very hard about and do something about. And now coming back to Evelyn's very wonderful observation about we should do more uh, in terms of even involving uh, public facing and uh, or even policy considerations and so on. So here's my big question for you all is, the role and the function of history science as well as history science society outside academia. And so here, Evelyn already touched upon this. So what can we do and why? So who is the audience beyond academic historians of science that we're looking for? And 
Ultimately, we also ask ourselves, what are the limits and the possibilities for us to reach to reach out? So, Evelyn, you you want to continue? Yeah, what I was going to do is say just in one short example. So, you know, within the history of science of society, when, starting when I was a graduate student, we had our first organized women's caucuses, and bringing out of those conversations both opportunities for women in the field, but also to really push the development of the topic of women in science, gender in science. And the real payoff of that has come in that I say a lot of that work in particular, and I uh, to think about Margaret Rossiter's work, really influenced the National Science Foundation in getting them to understand the problem of women in science. If that, that work hadn't been there, I think we would still be in sort of an incremental state of opening up those institutions and to think about women and gender in new ways. But with that work behind them, Rossiter provided really a kind of playbook for them to the extent that it's, that is what program officers, some of whom were historians of science, as a matter of fact, began to implement policy and develop policy based on a knowledge of what had happened and how it had happened, what the barriers and challenges were to women's scientists, and that was something that was documented in the history. And so they've changed things, and it has changed tremendously in some fields in the United States. And I honestly think if that work hadn't been there, it would have taken, it would have taken a lot longer, or some other kind of push factor would have happened that, you know, as a historian, we, we don't know what other kinds of things were shaping some of that, but, but I think it was really important. So I think that is a model for how we think about historians of science can have impact in the government. And in the past, there were many, there were some folks who really did in, in defense work with respect and those kinds of things. So I don't think this, I don't think it steps away from our past. Right. Great. Thank you so much. And Bernie, you are, you are next. Since you are actually president of the History of Science Society, when there were a lot of uh, this interface between academic as well as political issues going on. And so drawing upon your own experience, what do you think we can do or what we should do in a sense uh, from your perspective? Well, the one of the big problems for us was times when we wanted to intervene in significant public debates, but we didn't feel we could because we had a uh, kind of policy in place where we could only intervene when it affected professional historians of science. And since then, there has been a lot of debate, and I don't know, perhaps executive has resolved it at this point. I, I haven't been following it, but there was a lot of debate about revising that particular policy that we had that gave us a little, could give us a little more flexibility. So I think that that was, that's one kind of aspect of this. But I, I, I think the general point, I, I think that Evelyn um, made some excellent points, and I actually think it would be a good idea if we had some of our best scholars sit down and, and write some pieces on how history of science itself has, ha has led to big social change. You know, I think Evelyn's, uh, you laid out the arc of a really nice story that we could use for other kind of specific examples. But I guess what I really want to say is, since a lot of my scholarship in, in the past has been on the popularization of science and, and how non-scientists were writing for a public audience to try to interpret the significance of metaphysical, religious, uh, social significance of science, I mean, in a way, 
the stories of science can also play that kind of a role. So I think I think we do need to start writing more books for a, a broader audience. I think when when we ask about who our audience is beyond academic historians of science, I think it's the public. I think it's everybody. I don't think we should limit ourselves to just fellow professional historians of science. So I think we do have a role to play. I don't think we should just allow scientists to tell the story or popularizers of science to tell the story. I think we, we could probably do a better job than either of those two groups. And I think many of, of our colleagues are really good writers. And obviously, this has some kind of relationship to the expectations that we have of people when they're going for promotion and, and, uh, and tenure and things like that. But I don't think that should deter us from uh, writing more broader pieces. Great. Thank you. And uh, we do have, uh, just to follow up, one quick point is that we do have a new policy in place, which is a, a lot more uh, statement policy in, you know, in place. So in response to what you just mentioned here. So yes, uh, Young, how would you respond to this uh, situation? And then also like following up on Evelyn and Bernie's points. So yeah, just to add to what Evelyn and Bernie have said, uh, a kind of a footnote to what Evelyn said, uh, the story about the importance of the work on women in science and uh, Margaret Rossiter's role. I mean, I think Margaret Rossiter would be a good example of somebody who did not have very much support from her own institution when she started out her work. And I think the society, along with various other sort of support networks that she used. I think the society did contribute some support and encouragement to her work in that area. And that and that kind of is to get back to the the point I made earlier about what we do, that is sort of probably the key to mobilizing our resources in support of these efforts, whether it's publishing more popular kinds of books or public history projects that that bring the results of our work to a broader public. Um, these things are often not very well supported by individuals, professional people's home institutions. They're often not very well recognized by promotion and tenure criteria in uh, universities, for example. And so that is where a, an organization like the History of Science Society can encourage and support and facilitate that kind of work by offering the opportunities for communication and networking and so on that, that we offer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is wonderful. And so I have a, actually a quiz, not for you, but for our listeners. So, so here's the quiz. This year, or maybe next year, it's, it's a little bit uncertain. Either this year or next year is the 2000th anniversary. So 2000, that's very old. 2000th anniversary of somebody's birth year. So this person is a very important figure in the history of science or history of natural history. And he died from the eruption of a volcano on a rescue or observation mission. So I would like to ask the listeners, so please email your answer to Morgan at Morgan's, M-O-R-G-A-N, Morgan at hssonline.org. So Morgan at hsonline.org. So the first person who submits the correct answer, so it has to be correct, 
will receive a one-year free membership. If you're already a member, don't cry. It's okay. We will extend your membership. Now, thank you so much. And in concluding this conversation, I would like to ask you, our guests, to share your one wish for History Science Society in advance of its 100th birthday. So in two sentences each. So what would be your wish for our society for it's going to be 100 years old? And so we'll start with Bernie. Well, for me, obviously, another 100 years of success, I think that it does. it's important to me that the society continues to be the dynamic and important society that it is, that it continues to provide the kind of support for its members that it does and put on such a, a fabulous conference in whatever form in the future. Thank you. And again. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the our greatest asset is our members. And so we have had a bit of a decline in membership in recent years, but there are signs that that's turning around. So I, my wish is that we reverse the decline of membership of the society. We have turned around. Actually, the membership is going to grow. It's as you can see, it's bouncing back. Yes, if one year is a trend, then we're heading in the right direction. We're heading in the right direction. And Evelyn, you're the future, so you have the last word. I want to see a wonderful, beautiful graphic on the cover of Science Magazine celebrating the history of Science Society. Oh, that is a great one. So we'll, we'll work on that. So thank you so much. So Bernie, Yang, and Evelyn, thank you so much to be with us. And then so hopefully I'll see you soon again. Sure. Thank, thank you, Fatih, for all Thank you, Fatih.